You are listening to the Casting Shadows Podcast. Before we get into the episode for real, I have a call-in that I am late in sharing because there hasn't been an episode between when I got it and now. This is from Free Thrall, famously of Keep Off the Borderlands. And he's calling in to talk about RPG a day. Now, one of the details that he tells us in this series of calls, this unfortunate detail about his laptop, well, there has been a bizarre twist. And why do I say a bizarre twist? Well, as he describes, something happened to his lap, something fatal appeared to happen to his laptop, but instead is actually in a, a truly complicated and unexpected act of asexual reproduction. But if you go to Keep Off the Borderland, listen to what is at the time of recording his most recent episode, you'll hear the last few uh, posts for RPG A Day as he completes out the run for his podcast. I enjoyed uh, each day where Spencer Freethrall would be posting on Twitter. There's very few things I find on Twitter that I enjoy reading, but I could look forward every day to seeing something from Freethrall that was positive and about cool games and just, you know, was steeped in enthusiasm. So, you know, if you are uh, of a mind to go trawling through Twitter. You can find some great posts there, or you can jump over to Keep Off the Borderlands and listen to the episodes, the compilation episodes he did, much like I did and Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast did, and Spike Pit, and BJ, and many others. Carl Rodriguez of Geomologist Presents, compilation episodes bundling together uh, a number of responses into one episode. So anyway, thank you very much for uh, for calling in, Spencer. I appreciate the support. Um, I also appreciate the feedback about your experience. But without any further ado or uh, episode-appropriate manipulation of time, let's hear what Spencer has to say. Hey Anthony, Spencer here. I just wanted to say a big thank you for RPG A Day Month. I've particularly enjoyed interacting with it this year. The switch from prompts to questions I felt has provoked a more personal response from a lot of contributors. And um, I've found that the questions have lent themselves to me being able to interact through Twitter, doing daily tweets and putting up posts via my Facebook group. Um, So that's been really good. I have tried to do roundup episodes this month, and I was planning a big one for the end of the month. Unfortunately, my laptop and a power surge had some different ideas. And, well, long story short, I'm looking for a new laptop. But um, you don't want to hear about my woes. (laughs) After all, this is all about being positive and uh, talking positively about the hobby. And uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed that. 
I really appreciate what you do and um, I really enjoyed listening to the responses from everybody who's joined in this year. Thanks very much. Take care. It has been a while since I've recorded anything. I haven't written a blog post, I haven't done a podcast episode, and I haven't done anything for YouTube since the end of RPG A Day 2022. Today, I have the time and I have the disposition to do a podcast episode, so let's have at it. One of the things that kept me very busy and not in a position to dive into any of this RPG sharing was the local version of Thanksgiving. Now, as a Canadian, I'm still wired to think of Thanksgiving as something which happens in October. But here on the calendar, Chusok, as it's called, moves around as it is a lunar holiday. And this year, it was quite early happening last week. But in all other respects, it's the kind of Thanksgiving you might expect. Meaning, you get together with family and you eat too much. And so I spent many, many days kind of recovering from that experience and doing nothing beyond digesting. Of course, it took a lot of leftovers, the consumption of a lot of leftovers to build up the energy reserve required to do all that digesting. So you can kind of see how that could take me out of action for a while. One thing that was nice was that in previous years, COVID has really prevented families from getting together. But this year, it really wasn't that much more than an inconvenience. So, yay. Other things, well, you know, I've been working in the background on some large products. Or projects, rather, for AAA's games. And planning out some other stuff for myself. And so there has been a lot to work on when, you know, the digestion process has not been further addling my mind. One thing that happened this week, which was also of a great interest and kind of snapped me out of my lethargy, was being able to appear as one of the guest panelists on the recent Cerebrivore episode, which aired on the Friday past at time of recording. This episode was on the topic of time travel, which we quickly discovered was such a huge topic that we could barely begin to barely begin to scratch the surface. There is still so much more to talk about. So if you haven't listened to Cerebrivore yet, the last four episodes now in total have been on the topic of time travel. The first three of those four are republishing of some episodes from Safer Fantasy Crafting, which breaks down the notion of time travel into digestible chunks and chunks which we can then apply to role-playing games without being bound specifically to how it might have been done in other role-playing games in the past or not have been done in the past. So that was the basis for our conversation in the fourth episode. So I would encourage people to go check that out. Our noble host 
was a fantastic host and kept the conversation moving without getting mired down in too many tangents and details. And it was a lot of fun. I think you might enjoy the, the mix of personalities that appear and the, the beginnings of topics which are suggested. So maybe it can spark other podcasts across the Anchor universe to take a look at this juicy topic. But I think that's all the updates that are fit to share. And so let's get on into the episode. Over the past little while, there's been a discussion about metagaming and how it might tie into things like character skill and player skill, which is a difficult conversation at the best of times. But I have been listening to it mainly as it plays out between Joe Richter of the Hindsightless podcast and the Pink Phantom of Phantom Thoughts. And, you know, I enjoyed that that particular uh, round of exchanges and thought that the Phantom uh, nailed a lot of ideas in a way that that closely align with my own. But as I went into the the background research for being a part of a time travel in RPGs podcast episode for Cerebrivore, I found that there was a synchronicity with one of the anecdotes that I thought I may or may not be able to share. So that the notion of metagaming, the notion of skill as a role-playing gamer, and the notion of applying certain game master tips and tricks <laughs> uh, to enable either a time travel experience or at least an asynchronous or out-of-order experience of the flow of time for the player of a character. Right. Meaning, of course, for the character, time flows in its normal unbroken pattern. It unfolds as it should, but the experience of that experience on the player side of the equation is presented out-of-order. All those things tie together. And I thought, well, let's see if we can't make some kind of episode out of that. So first, we'll need some context. As a game master, given the opportunity to have the same group of players playing the same group of characters for an open-ended campaign, the preparation that I will do will almost exclusively be focused on the creation of non-player characters and the things that those non-player characters want to do. They're not specifically designed to conflict with the player characters, but neither do I shy away from it. And as the campaign goes on, we come to normal breaks for experience points, and we come to periods where 
player characters are exchanged for other player characters, or more characters are added to the troop, or that sort of thing, much like you'd find in maybe a, how we used to think of campaigns of being a series of events that are strung together, such as the, the large and very famous published campaigns from role-playing game companies. Right? We're going to play through a sequence of, of prepared situations with or without alteration and improvisation, with or without tangents, uh, with or without uh, heroic efforts to get people back somewhere near the semblance of the through line provided by the, the published material and, and so on and so forth. It plays out like that, as if those things were going on, but those things are not going on. There really aren't situations or encounters or uh, environments that are planned. Rather, I focus on the activities and personalities of the non-player characters. And it is from this that, you know, the enjoyment of play arises. And sometimes trying to communicate that idea and what that environment of play is like, that, that whole notion doesn't get communicated very well, especially if the listener has no experience of playing in that type of environment. And the term sandbox is often thrown around, and it also can kind of dead end a conversation when how a sandbox, not what a sandbox is, but how a sandbox is deployed by a game master is not understood or has been done in a suboptimal way, let's say. But for the purposes of this episode, let's just... <laughs> Let's just allow me to establish briefly that essentially in long-form play and open-ended play, what I like to call campaign play, what I'm doing is a sandbox. With, I guess, the exception being that I'm not mapping it out. I normally play science fiction games, and so the idea of mapping out the universe is... Uh, not the best use of my time as a game master. It's not really where I draw a lot of enjoyment, although a lot of my friends really do. So I, I understand it, but don't resonate with it. So instead, I like to focus on the characters rather than, you know, the, the strange new worlds and, and the vistas, that kind of thing. I don't ever have a feeling of, this is where you must go and this is what you must do except at the beginning of the campaign where there's some sort of unifying principle that has drawn the characters together to give our play its initial context. We like to call this the inciting situation, something launches us into play. And this is either something that I've come up with or that is blindingly obvious during the character creation process or something that we, you know, we, we cobble together ourselves as a group, agree on, and then make happen. But once play is in motion, it's kind of like a perpetual motion machine. The actions and interactions and reactions. It's a phrase you've probably heard me say a fair bit if you've been listening to this podcast, right? Action, interaction, and reaction. These things drive 
the campaign. They keep it in motion. They keep it interesting. They keep it relevant. They do not determine where we are going, and they are not going to any specific place, kind of like life. Instead, they create the drama, the contrast, the comparison, the conflict. They create reason in the moment. When we look back, they help us understand the shape of the story that our the way our brains work and the way that language works, the way we describe what we have done, becomes story. But looking forward, it's just as opaque as in real life. We think we know what will what is going to happen, but there are so many things that might prevent our predictions from coming true. As a species, we are terrible at prediction. So this is the kind of thing that I go for as a game master. I'm sorry it takes so long to get that little bit of context out of the way, but it is kind of important. So essentially, a lot of what goes on is improvisation. But as I've talked about in our series on Alien, this is improvisation which has been prepared for. When at the table playing with the group, I'm not making things up in response to create a situation. Like, I need to slow them down, so I'm going to create tough opposition here. And then, because I'm improvising everything, I can create just the right kind of opposition to provide that bulking effect, right? You're going to be stopped here, right? This kind of thing. This is not what I'm doing. I'm not playing with story beats, right? The whole notion of I need to slow them down because they're making their, their progress is too fast is related to play that's operating on the layer of our imagination, which is entirely concerned with story. I don't do things that are on the mechanical level of play either, where we think, well, you know, we haven't used the combat system for a while, or we haven't had a chase for a while, or we haven't had some kind of you know, investigation for a while. So let's bring out those mechanisms and let's insert them into this convenient slot. I'm not basing things on that. Now, I do like to learn a lot of new games, so I will put a little caveat here that I will specifically focus on mechanisms of play so that we can learn them. But once we've learned them, they no longer are a driving force for what might happen in a, in a session. The only thing that matters is what the player characters do and what the non-player characters do. This is action. How those things interact with each other. This is interaction, obviously. And how they react to all of these things. And this is reaction. So... This is what I see of as the, as the primary driver of play and what informs improvisation. So, for example, if we go to a place, let's say it's an orbital station, right? The orbital station will be improvised once. It will be remembered and stay the same ever after. The exception to this is during 
a situation which is obviously going to be tactical or which we know well in advance is going to be tactical, such as, you know, a, a, a battle is looming. And, and let's say in Star Wars, the Empire is moving uh, Star Destroyers into a solar system and they're, and they're massing at some point that, that the Empire values, such as, you know, the, the primary jump point into the system. And we know that the Rebels have a base on some insignificant moon somewhere, and their forces are massing, and they're trying to bring in, you know, materiel and resources to, to fund their efforts to resist, you know, what is going to be the overwhelming force. So we know the layout of the solar system, and we know where the Rebels are, because that's who we're playing. And we can see how the Empire is setting up their forces. And then when we actually do that battle that day, there will be a tactical map available that players can plan for because that's a part of what their characters know. But the idea of setting up all that information all the time, such as writing out my own multi, multi-chapter um, you know, 18-month campaign with all the NPCs written out and all the locations mapped and all the handouts prepared. This is not something um, that is a part of my normal cycle. Right? The preparation for improvisation is based, for me, around the, the role-play interactions and the, the interactions and actions and reactions that those characters have as, you know, as free agents in the universe, that kind of thing. So imagine the techniques, the role-playing game techniques question, which presents itself to this kind of game master when the desire to present things out of sequence manifests itself for whatever reason. So in my case, the specific reason was playing Star Trek. And it's almost a staple of, well, it's almost a, a, a mainstay of television full stop. But in science fiction like Star Trek, the idea of seeing something and then going back an amount of time, not as time travelers, but simply as viewers, is, you know, is a, a writing tool to allow a slow setup that would otherwise seem like just a normal day in the lives of the crew have some dramatic weight. And also, just as a game master, it's kind of fun to dig some new tools out of the toolbox or dust off old ones that aren't seeing much use in the, you know, the current paradigm of how you run games. So, for whatever reason, time travel has been a signature part of my Star Trek adventures, the 2D20 uh, Star Trek role-playing game. Time travel has been a significant part of each campaign that I have run with Star Trek Adventures, even though I personally do not really like time travel episodes. There are exceptions, you know, like City on the Edge of Forever is, is pretty extraordinary, and because of my great love of its story, I'm willing to overlook some of the challenges, the logical challenges that the episode presents and so on and so forth. So it's not my favorite type of science fiction, but I have read a lot of time travel stories and, you know, keep, I'm, 
I may, I remain willing to be upset by them <laughs> rather than cutting them out of my life forever. So in the example that I want to bring up has nothing to do with time travel, but the perception of the players is on a temporal level fiddled with. So the session opened with a scene which is 12 hours later than the point at which play will start. All right, so we open up just like you would in, in a television show, seeing something play out. And, and there's, there's lots of seriousness and you have no idea that this is anything other than the beginning of the episode. Then you reach some dramatic point in the scene and you see a sign scroll, you know, you see a note scroll across the bottom saying a number of hours earlier or a number of days earlier. It's really, really common in investigation and mystery type uh, shows. So I decided that I was going to try this out for Star Trek Adventures. Now, when I suggested this on Cerebrivore, very rightly, the reaction of the other game masters there was that using this technique, it seems like railroading or uh, an implementation of the quantum ogre. And they would be right. Or are they? And so that's the thing that I would like to look at. But to get there, I think it's wise to take a journey through metagaming and player skill and character skill, if we're going to separate those out, and talk about the railroad, a little bit about the sandbox, and a little bit about the quantum ogre. So here's the scene. The ship is a pretty good balance between a warfare role and a scientific exploration role. And the reason for this is that this is another one of those five-year missions out into unexplored space that Starfleet is so famous for. This ship has to be able to protect itself. It has to be able to uh, withstand close encounters with mysterious civilizations and, and that sort of thing. But it's also going out into space that they know is also being expanded into by a less-than-friendly Romulan space empire. So, throughout the entire campaign, there has been an awareness that somewhere out there the Romulans are up to something. And during the course of the campaign... The crew has encountered the remnants of things that the Romulans have done, such as slave-taking and, and uh, this sort of thing. And they have encountered uh, Romulan technology deployed for espionage purposes, and they have encountered surgically altered Romulans and gotten in, embroiled with them in other you know, star-faring uh, galactic civilizations out there. So they are well and truly primed for some sort of encounter. And some of them are kind of spoiling for that encounter. And some of them are dreading that encounter. And some of them are wondering, 
you know, can they broker a peace? And some of them are wondering, can they slap the nose of, of the Romulan hard enough to make them stay away uh, from this ship as it tries to conduct its mission? And they're torn. They're torn between you know, adhering to the prime directive and they're torn between self-defense and and you know they're very, very far away from home. There's no one that's likely to come to their aid unless they can make new friends in the region. And to do that, of course, kind of opens things up to you know to the diplomatic sphere of things. Now, Star Trek Adventures, one of the very cool things about it is that there's a very strong expectation that one of the players will be playing the role of the captain. Or there's an alternative of making the captain what's called a secondary character, meaning that any one of the players could adopt to play that character in the moment in play. But the idea is that there's going to be a player in the role of captain in pretty much any scene where the captain is involved. Now, a lot of players out there shy away from this. You can see people talking about it in forums where Star Trek Adventures is talked about. And in our first campaign, the campaign that I'm talking about here, this was the same, sort of. The idea was that one of the players wanted to be promoted to captain. So when we designed the, the character of the captain, the existing captain, they were nearing retirement. And the first officer was being groomed to take her place. I liked this just fine. This still left the captain uh, you know, available to be, to be played by a character, uh, should it be interesting and convenient. But it also gave me a, an NPC, which is not exactly what it is in other games, gave me an NPC on the ship that I could use to um, be a source of shipboard adventure, let's say. You know, uh, the captain is you know, testing the crew or the captain is, is doing something where the other players don't necessarily know what's going on, what the captain's motives are. This is something that definitely is less possible if everyone is sharing the role of captain and is something that you know, a player might feel uncomfortable doing or dreaming up with on their own until there's a lot of trust in the group. So I thought, you know, for our first foray into Star Trek Adventures, okay, this time the, the captain will be an NPC. So for this particular episode, it had been determined by the players, this was their decision, that they were going to go using this ancient star map that they had found from one of the civilizations that they had been communicating with. They were going to go and do some research and try to figure out uh, the answer to a, a long-held archaeological problem. We don't need to get into the details. And the captain was a specialist in this particular area, right? Both scientifically and geologically and that, and that sort of thing. So it was pretty much understood at the end of the previous session that the captain would be leading the away missions. And this would be a session where the executive officer would be in charge 
aboard the ship, and we were having some kind of shipboard adventure. So when we sat down to play, I immediately opened up with klaxons on the bridge, and all the player characters were represented on the bridge with some of their favorite secondary characters, and the main viewer was showing the approach of this giant ball of plasma, a very famous um, Romulan superweapon from the original series. That most excellent episode, Balance of Terror. But before surrendering the reins of description and doing something like having players declare actions or give orders, I cut to 12 hours earlier. So suddenly everyone realizes that this episode is being run out of sequence and that they have just seen something that's in their future. Now, as a game master, when you hear that, I think you automatically go to, at the very least, at the most generous, you're thinking, Quantum Ogre. No matter what decision they make, this is in their future, because you've just said this is in your future. Can we challenge that understanding? Can we find a different way in through technique to where that is not the case? Now, already in this overlong setup, I've given you some, some clues, at least to the way I view things, about how we can do this without it being just an egregious railroad or you know, yet another example of the quantum ogre in action. And this is where we're going to turn around and take a look at the idea of metagaming, of skill on the part of the players, whether through uh, what their character can do or what they themselves as players of a game can do and the idea of sandboxes and agency. So let's start out with metagaming. Meta, of course, meaning separate from, right? Above, behind, uh, beside. When we're talking about the game as a game, we're talking on a meta level about it. And metagaming is making decisions, really, the, the process of playing a role-playing game is making decisions. When we strip it down to its base form, what do we do? We have, we have a character, we have a faction or whatever for, uh, for whom we are making decisions, right? We have, we've taken on that role. So metagaming in the role-playing game context then is making decisions based on what is good for the game, what makes sense in the context of it being a game, and that sort of thing. This can include things like, well, I know the game master very well, so they're very likely to be doing this, and so my response is that. Or uh, my fellow players are likely to enjoy this, and so I will do this. That sort of thing. Things that are outside the experience of the character and that are defined through the influence of all the factors that go into gameplay. So the social level, the system level, the setting level, regardless of whether the character is aware of that setting detail or not, all of these things, when decisions are influenced by these factors, this is an example of metagaming. And if we restrict our understanding of metagaming to this level, we can find examples where metagaming is, is exactly what we should be doing to fulfill our 
function within the group of everybody having a good time, or when it's the last thing that we should be doing in order to fulfill the function that we have in a group dedicated to having a good time. Right? Metagaming in itself is neither good nor bad. It's, a, it's simply a description of where our gaming comes from. It comes from the outside of the game rather than from within, from the perspective of the character or whatever that we are representing in play. When we get into things like player skill or character skill, then this is a really old argument, a really old discussion about whether or not your character would know that. We're talking about meta-knowledge. And the classic examples are of you know people building dams and things um, as a solution to a problem when you know what indication that we have or do we have that in this you know this society this faux medieval society or whatever they would have these kinds of technology we're bringing in information from our world and saying well you know if i were there i would build a dam and then so they build a dam and why not there's nothing in the game system to say that they cannot and at the same time there's nothing in the game system to support them doing it and so that can lead to arguments those who would like to kind of create this imagined world and create limits for what those characters can conceive of are experiencing friction with those who would prefer to simply import themselves into the system right and just have fun right so both sides want to have fun and both sides want to express their imagination in a particular way. And these things are equivalent, neither right nor wrong. They're just different. They don't always agree with each other. And so often in our groups, the imbalance between where that agreement lies can lead to some people having more fun or less fun than others. And so hence, we have arguments about what's the right way to do it. Should we try and figure out a way to pretend how to be less educated than we are because we're playing in a supposedly earlier time period with less technology? Or should we be enjoying our ability to make a decision in the setting unfettered by any imagine, additional imagined constraints? What can the character do? This is character skill. It's represented on the character sheet. Not all games represent everything a character can do on the character sheet, such as games that do not have skills. So then there's some overlap between character skill and player skill, as part of player skill is knowing how to use the tools of the game properly. It has really nothing to do with deciding to build a dam in a low-tech society. That has everything to do with meta-knowledge, with metagaming. So both of these things, both of these categories are in themselves categories of metagaming. So in my example, I have deliberately introduced metagame information to the players. They are aware of something that's going to happen 12 hours in the future of their characters. And the question they have 
to wrestle with as players is how much that information is going to influence their decisions, which means if I don't want to railroad, if I don't want to be just hitting them with a quantum ogre, ha ha ha, you're going to wind up here regardless of what you do. If I don't want that to be the case, then I need to be very careful about how I shape that particular opening scene. What information does it contain? What information does it insist, you know, must be true and that sort of thing. So, as I've mentioned already, the crew has had their encounters with the Romulans. They have been placed in great peril by the Romulans, and they are now entering into a sort of competition for very important information with the Romulans. And so it has become a standing order on the ship to be alert for the Romulans. And the executive officer has been working overtime trying to figure out countermeasures to deal with Romulan cloaking technology and strategies to deal with what he fears might be a new iteration of their superweapon. He's already prepared for the challenges. So, after the initial shock of deploying this technique wore off, he took it more as context than as fate. Right? This is a thing that I need to be prepared for. Right? This is what the Romulans do. This is how the Romulans behave. They appear out of nowhere. They attack from surprise with overwhelming force. Am I ready for that? How would my worry about my understanding of Romulan tactics influence my command? What, would, what steps would I take to protect the away teams down on the planet below? What steps would I take to maintain alert status, good, effective alert status, on the ship? To me, this is a sign of excellent player skill. Right? How do I play this game in order to gain access to everything it offers, that Star Trek experience? Right? How do I get myself into that Star Trek experience as this character to the best of my ability? How do I take everything that's happening in play and feed it back into having that experience and supporting the other people at the table having that experience as well? This, I think, is an example of player skill. Right. And it's drawing, I think, in a very healthy way from meta-knowledge, from meta-gaming. Now, how do we avoid the idea of railroading, of me stripping away decision? That's what railroading is. It's not scenario design. It's not the opposite of sandbox. It's an in-the-moment decision by the game master that player decisions don't matter. How do we avoid that? Well, <laughs> by simply not ignoring their decisions. This is a huge gamble that I took as a game master. They may have, on encountering some situations that came up in play, decided to gather up the away teams and warp out of orbit thereby negating that opening scene. 
It's entirely possible. Would have been deflating for me. <laughs> but at the same time, that whole 12 hours earlier thing could have been spun retroactively, narratively, into the worries, the concerns, the, the fears, or the simulations, or tactical plans of the first officer. There's probably some way to recover from this high-risk, high-stakes gamble. <laughs> and to be clear, I don't think that making decisions that will bring about this opening scene is an example of player skill. They don't need to predetermine their future any more than I as the Game Master should, from my perspective. So how do we get back to a situation where this scene arises all on its own because it should? Because even if we hadn't decided to play around with the order of events, it would have happened anyway. Right? It would have been improvised naturally anyway. It would have been the result, the outcome, right? that makes sense in the moment. Well, first off, the situation as presented didn't give any context for the attack. It simply gave the visuals of the attack. Where was the bridge crew? They were on the bridge. What were they doing? They were experiencing a red alert. Why were they experiencing a red alert? Because there was an incoming attack. Was it the first attack? Was it the last attack? Was it some kind of special attack? There's no indication whatsoever. Was the crew in readiness or not? We don't know. Right? All we know is that the people who are normally on the bridge were on the bridge. All we know is that in a combat situation, there was a red alert. All we know is that the expected enemy is the enemy. The only new detail is the plasma weapon. Well, how did things actually play out? Well, the captain took their away team down. They began doing research. There was lots of involvement there with people on the ship receiving data from the surface. And, and there were strange uh, planetary-based problems to solve. And uh, there was a lot of the normal sort of challenge that we were used to experiencing in the campaign. We were investigating stuff. We were using science. We were making hypotheses and then determining if those hypotheses were even in the ballpark. And we were on alert for Romulan activity. They knew before the session even started that there could be Romulan activity, and they got a strong hint at the beginning that, you know, maybe this was the time. So they were good Starfleet officers. The surprise attack did come, but it was directed by the Romulans at the surface. And this was an interesting challenge that I proposed to them because the Romulan plasma weapon, although a high-speed weapon, is a physical weapon. It's a physical ball of plasma which needed to travel through space to the planet, penetrate the atmosphere, and then detonate on the surface. This gave the crew all sorts of things to do, right? Emergency beam-outs and extending the shields and, you know, you name it. They were, you know, in a sense, caught flat-footed. They had to scramble their emergency medical teams and so on and so forth. It was 
pretty exciting. And then they had to decide, what do we do, right? Do we run or do we turn to engage? Is the best defense in this situation offense? And they went for offense. And they began to, of course, broadcasting terms to the Romulans. But they wound up in a battle with the Romulans. And so, at some point, we simply mentioned that this scene is the scene we saw in the beginning by stating the time, right? We recognized it was 12 hours after transporting down to the surface of the planet. And it was immensely satisfying. It came about not through force. It came about not by denial of choice. It came about not by uh, creating an illusion of choice, but rather it came about because, well, the players made it happen by playing their characters in the situation that the characters had chosen to go to. And the Romulan commander made it happen by playing out the sorts of decisions that he would have to make based on the situation he was presented with. And the interaction between all of these things led to my gamble paying off. And for that moment, that session for which I prepared to improvise, prepared by understanding who the characters were, understanding the technology, understanding Star Trek, right? I prepared to improvise in the moment. The risk I took was talking about things out of sequence. And the reward was that without having to use these kind of blunt force trauma techniques of railroad or quantum ogre, have this play out naturally as if I hadn't done it. So, how does all of this tie back into the Cerebrivore episode on time travel? From a certain point of view, it doesn't. But in our exploration of this sequence of techniques and this perspective on play, one group of people at the table, the players, are experiencing things differently from their characters. And they're experiencing things out of order. Something that happens in the future happens first. And this colors their perception of what happens next for them in play, but which actually happened first for them in the experience of the characters. So by playing with time on the player layer, we can have a different kind of reward, right? An additional reward to play, uh, which kind of demonstrates our player skill and kind of removes the, the stigma or the fear of, you know, the dreaded metagaming or meta-knowledge. We can still use any tool for harm or for ill, but with experience and with thought, we don't have to. We can learn to use the tool for the thing the tool was meant for, or we can develop our own tools to achieve goals that we now see as both possible and desirable as a result of putting in the time to practice and play. So, 
in a real time travel game where there's real time travel of whatever type, when we look at the situations posed or the types of time travel or types of physics of time travel presented by Safer in his initial three episodes about time travel, there are different situations which require different types of improvisation from us, an understanding of how things are and and why things are and what people have done and might want to do next. And all of these things uh, require a certain fleetness of our of our mental stance and our ability to interpret what not only makes sense to us as people and sense to us as players, it makes sense to the characters. Everything is grounded together in something that we can easily accept. We don't have to fight our way through into seeing how it was possible. And I think that's good practice. I think building on all of our skills and taking them into the next challenging sort of play is desirable. And playing with time travel, regardless of whether we take the there is one flow of time and only one flow of time and any change is a problem and must be addressed approach, or there are many nodules of time and you have a, a certain window of, of possibility to handle things before you know, consequences might be felt. Uh, these bubbles break off and will they become you know, dead lines of time or will they become a, a new, healthy and viable branch of time? Or if we go the full multiverse route where it's almost like moving from room to room or train car to train car where every new location is a different, self-contained flow of time. Each one of these comes with its own rules, and each one of them will spawn different Game Master techniques that allow us to make the experience of time travel an experience worth having. And that, I think, is a very fruitful ground to talk about in future episodes and across the spectrum of podcasts out there in the Anchor community and beyond. But that, dear listener, is up to you. So if you've survived this entire episode and still want to hear more, you might, you could conceivably anyway, be curious about what the next podcast episode will be about. And we will close out this episode with a call from Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast, one of the very last ones I got before the Anchor Apocalypse, which will give you a hint about that topic. Anthony, Jason here. Just want to let you know I really like the idea of multiple GMs in a single game world, doing the rotating GM thing so everybody gets to play a player now and then, like you're talking about doing your... Um, no, I'll get the name wrong now. Your Three Musketeer game. <laughs> Sorry, I'm tired. It's been a real long day. I, I know it's all in Diablique and Anyway, the Musketeer game. But, yeah, I really like that idea of rotating GMs. And, and I really don't think it's that would be as hard as a lot of people think it might be. Um, so I'm going to have to talk some groups into trying to do that. I, I I think that's a really cool way to let everybody get to to both GM and to play and, and to share the wealth as it were.
You've been listening to an episode of the Casting Shadows podcast, an anchor podcast, where it used to be quite easy to get in touch with the podcasters, and now some slight challenge has been presented. In the show notes, you can find the ways to get in contact with me if you'd like to send me a message that I can use in a future episode and keep things going. I certainly would like to hear from you. But until the next episode... Take care.